all God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you so much for leading us in worship. Uh, wow, it's good to be with you. It's good to be in the presence uh, of our Lord. I hope that you cling to the goodness of God. Lamentations chapter 3 resonates the original thought of the faithfulness of God. Thomas Chisholm wrote the great hymn from the perspective given to us from the scriptures, particularly Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. God's mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Is that not encouraging and comforting? His mercies stand brand new every morning. So I pray that you'll cling to the goodness of God. Those words came at a time when, when God's people were really distraught and uh, misdirected by their own failures and by the, the uh, onslaught of the enemies around them. And so they took great hope and courage in knowing that God's arms are open and uh, he can be trusted. And so in the, in the school of thought concerning our trust in God, I'd like to share with you some personal questions that I pray will move you forward in your faith. Uh, I shared with you three questions last week that were intended to do the same, and I bring you part two of these questions. Now, last week, the questions were very piercing and personal, were they not? So this week, the questions are, yeah, they're still personal and piercing, so... Sorry, um, but you know, I, I find great comfort in uh, preaching through the scriptures expositionally. If you're wondering what that word uh, expresses, that's the way your pastor has been preaching for five years for the most part, through a text verse by verse. So I grow out of my comfort zone when I feel God having me to preach from several different verses as we will today. But I share these questions with you because they reflect on how our faith and trust in God must be moving forward. The entire theme of this service thus far has been to keep your eyes on the goodness of God, His faithfulness made known through Christ. So how do we actualize this? Well, some questions will be helpful. Now, I love the power of questions. Do, do you love the power of questions? I really do. We ask questions all the time, do we not? We, we ask rhetorical questions. That, that really aren't intended for a response. Well, we, we ask interpretive questions. Hey, what do you think about this or that? We ask factual questions. Hey, exactly how cold is it outside or how warm is it? So we have different ways of asking questions. We ask loaded questions, do we not? But we also ask questions that are common for those closest to us, particularly those in our home. Have you ever had your parents to look at you with this question? What are you thinking? No, wait a minute. That was my wife. I'm sorry. That was not my parents. That was my wife. Uh, perhaps you've had this question asked by your parents. Do you want me to pop you? I was asked that by my mom when I was a young lad sitting in church. Actually, I think she meant it for my brother. I just happened to be close to him. And we were being a bit disruptive. And she said, you want me to pop you? And my brother and I looked at each other thinking comedy would be the best relief. And we looked at her in the middle of the church service and whispered, well, no, that would be crazy for us to want that. 
Even though we said no, we were popped. Uh, <laughs> what good was it do for her to ask? We got popped anyway. We said, no, we don't want you know, be crazy if we wanted you to pop us. Um, so we have a lot of different ways of communicating through questions. This morning we will conclude our time together with that tool of communication. Questions, uh, the questions that the Word of God will bring to us by way of application will certainly not be loaded questions, nor will they be interpretive questions, nor will they be questions that are not intended to have a response. Boy, did I learn that hard, the hard way. But instead, these questions will be what I like to call the questions of fact and the questions of evaluation. Of all that I could continue to teach you as a congregation from the Word of God, The message of applying what we already know becomes paramount. Questions that would cause us to look inside. To ask hard and long, exactly how am I doing? For you see, each of these questions will build upon the facts of Scripture, but will then be laid in your life for evaluation. I can preach the truth to you. I can explain the scriptures only under the anointing of God and the way that God would be pleased. But what I cannot do is come behind your eyes and evaluate what that scripture needs to be doing in your life right now. But that becomes the focus of these questions. So the questions you'll hear today will be both fact and evaluative. What becomes the essence of my Christian life based on this particular verse or that? And how am I doing with this? So I pray your heart certainly becomes open to, uh, to these questions. Now, I'd like to begin, uh, before we unload the first question, uh, with the, the most rudimentary of our lives, and that would be faith. For just a moment, let's begin at the rudimentary place. Faith. We ascribe one to another that we are people of faith. We describe that because of our faith in Jesus, we belong to him. And so now we live out that faith as he would desire. So faith always exists in our vocabulary as proclaimers of Jesus, as disciples of our Lord. James deliberated over the topic of faith, did he not? In James chapter 2, verse 18, small epistle in the New Testament, yet very powerful with the topic of faith. James would make a statement in chapter 2, verse 18. Show me your faith by what you say, and I will show you my faith by what I do. James deliberated what might be the most difficult of this rudimentary topic, faith, that we will ever embrace. Am I simply talking my faith? Or does my faith truly guide every part of my life? So I, I begin with this question. This is question number one. And we will look to Psalm chapter 5, verse 3 to better strengthen the engagement with this question. But let me pose the first of the three questions for today to you. Is your life of faith more theory 
than practice? Or do you genuinely live through the eyes of faith? Is your life of faith more theory than practice? The word theory simply indicates a concept, an ideal, something that we all should share and exhibit. Is your faith more of a concept than practice? Or do you genuinely live your life through eyes of faith? In Psalm chapter 5, I invite you there first, and we'll take two other stops within the Scripture. But in Psalm chapter 5, verse 3, our first stop, that helps us to engage this question, comes to us from God's appointed messenger, David. The Psaltery, the Psalms were certainly intended both for expressive and directive worship before Jehovah. In Psalm chapter 5, we hear David proclaiming in verse 3, In the morning, God, you will hear my voice, and I will order my prayers, and I will eagerly look up. Translated, I will wait. Translated, I will eagerly watch. I will look up. Is your life of faith more theory than practice? Or do you genuinely look up to Jehovah? Do you genuinely live through eyes of faith? In 2009, the Washington Post featured a story about a dear lady whose name is Emma Daniel Gray. She was born in Edgefield, South Carolina. Let's give it up for Edgefield. No, there's no one that knows where that is except my wife and I. <laughs> if somebody was going to yell, Edgefield, yay, I was going to come meet you right now. You'd be the first to know where Edgefield is, other than those who live close to there. Emma Gray moved from the little sleepy town of Edgefield, South Carolina, to Washington, D.C. in 1943, where she became the cleaning lady for the Oval Office. She retired in 1979. She cleaned the Oval Office for six different presidents. And they said of her, at her eulogy when she passed away in 1995, they said of her, that she could be seen in the Oval Office cleaning supplies in one hand and the other hand on the back of the chair of the most powerful man in the world praying for his tasks. It was her pastor, Bishop Royce Woods, who said of Emma Gray, she saw life through the eyes of promise. You can always look around and find reason to be unhappy. But you couldn't be around her and not know what she believed. Eyes of promise. I ask you today, is your faith lived out more theory than practice? Or do you have eyes of promise? There are two steps we can take modeled from Psalm 5 that will help us. To resolve this question in favor of God's pleasure, not our own reality. First, from Psalm chapter 5. Notice the fervent heart 
If you would desire to be someone who lives with eyes of faith or eyes of promise, first, from Psalm chapter 5, consider the fervent heart. Again, this helps us to move from that, that impasse of faith just being a concept in our lives that we try to live up to or whether we're truly living out faith in everything that we say and do. So watch as David, through spiritual movements of his own soul, expresses first the fervent heart. When chapter 5 opens, Psalm 5, if you will, David proclaims, give ear to my words, God. Give ear to my words. Have you ever said, God, I really need you to listen to me? We haven't talked in a while, but I really need you to hear this. Well, David is actually saying, God, I need you to hear my words. But David did not stop there in that moment of saying, God, I just need you to pay attention to what I'm saying. No, God said, or David said, God, give ear to my words. And then in verse 1 of chapter 5, David said, consider my meditation." This incredible psalm gives the contrast that I believe will help you to resolve this question. The contrast is, are you simply giving words to Jesus or are you meditating and bringing your heart before Him? David said, within the Hebrew poetry, an intentional contrast. God, you're hearing my words, but consider my meditation." David gave no labor of lip service to the Lord. For as he stated his words emphatically in the text, we see from the language, David shifting to the meditations of the heart. God, I desire that you would see the stirrings of my heart. God, I'm opening all of my life to you. So first, notice the fervent heart. If you desire to be one that lives with eyes of faith, you and I must have a fervent heart to come before God regularly. Before we begin in prayer, we must take the correct posture. Prayer is not a program. Prayer is not some late uh, very inventive steps that you and I can take to strengthen the church. Prayer begins with our own personal posture before God. And David said, God, I pray you hear my words, but consider my heart. So David brought his life in total before God. If you would desire to move from faith, it's only a concept to where you have eyes of promise. You need to posture your heart regularly before God no one will do that for you no amount of preaching teaching or worship will posture your heart before God if you're not willing to say God hear my words and consider my meditations God I bring my whole life before you and I lay it open so that God whatever you say I'm yours I stop calling the shots God I need you to intervene this was David's heart contextually do you know what the first several psalms focus upon in David's life? His retreat from Absalom. David's not quoting Psalm 5 from a comfortable experience of worship, but being on the run because his own child has raised up a group of people to kill him. David said, God, I'm yours. 
But notice the fervent heart portrayed in verse 3 as well. David said, in the morning, in the morning, God, you will hear my voice. In the morning, God, I'll bring my prayers and I will wait. Do you see the fervent heart? Do you take notice of the fervent heart? God, I'm before you. But second, take notice of the focus. It's one thing to have a fervent heart to say, God, I'm yours. But now notice, secondly, how David focused on God. Again, we're resolving this question with Psalm 5. And we've noticed the fervent heart, God, I'm before you. But now notice the focus that becomes apparent in verse 3. The focus of David's fervency became expressed several ways. First, David said, in the morning, the Hebraic emphasis of in the morning references regularity. You may say, I'm not a morning person. This psalm does not apply to my life. David would say, are you kidding? Well, actually, that would probably be me. But David would say, in the morning emphasizes regular. As often as you can. You see, that first watch of the day was significant for the Hebrew. And the way you begin is usually the way you'll end. The way you begin something is how you're going to finish. You shouldn't be surprised that I'm preaching long. I've done that for five years. The way you begin is the way you'll finish. David would say with his focus in the morning regularly. Notice what else he declares. In the morning, God, you hear my voice. God, I order my prayers. David brought the the blessing of praise, but he also brought the, burden, brought the burden of petition. God, you will hear my prayers. And then David said, and I will look up. There's the focus. God, I will wait upon you. Do you see the fervent heart to come before God regularly? Do you see the focus? God, I'm just going to watch for you. I will wait. You know, when we take this posture, every part of life, becomes fully surrendered. How can it not? Because we say, God, I'm waiting on you. Oftentimes we pray, and then we try to go find our own answers to our prayer. David said, God, I'm before you regularly, and I'm praying, and I will wait and watch. The language of the Hebrew poetry in Psalm 5, incidentally, references that of a vigil watchman on the watchtower of the city. Most cities in ancient days had a watchtower, and the watchman would walk up, and he would constantly practice his vigilness. You and I must be ardently vigil as we look up and have eyes of promise to the Father. What do we look up to becomes a sub-question. Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 reminds us, faith is the evidence of things unseen, the substance of things hoped for. We look for the unseen substance. Well, what is that substance? 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20 announces in Jesus all of God, God's promises are yes and amen. His promises are fulfilled, which is why in Revelation chapter 3 verse 14, Jesus becomes recognized as the amen, the certainty of all truth and the faithfulness of God. That summarizes Jesus, 
So our eyes of promise become reality as we stay postured before Jesus in a complete heart of surrender. It was the old beloved American Quaker pastor, Dr. Elton Trueblood, who once said, the practice of faith, the real practical faith, begins at two books, the checkbook and the calendar book. You'll know you have practical faith by evidences in the checkbook and the calendar book. Now, he stated this in the 20th century. Today, you and I might pose a different application. You'll know practical faith by watching your post or by listening to how you talk at home. But the emphasis lies upon faith that becomes saturated in all of our lives. So this takes us to a second question. Hold that thought for a moment. That true faith, that is not theory but practice, the eyes of promise saturates all of our life. We saw that in the life of Emma Gray. All of life becomes saturated with Christness. But when we are truly postured before him in faith. But I'd like to move you to a second question as we move to a New Testament passage. So turn with me to Romans chapter 12. We're leaving Psalm chapter 5 now. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. And here this second question, which best summarizes you at this moment? Now, you're going to feel a bit pinched here, but stay with me. Which best summarizes you at this moment, Sunday living or a living sacrifice? Now, I'm speaking to the Christians in the room as much as this word is speaking to me. Which best summarizes you at this, moment, at this moment, Sunday living or a living sacrifice? How can it be that you and I move to a place where all of our life becomes saturated and, and directed by our faith in Jesus so that we're not living compartmentalized? How can this be? David, pray, God, I come before you. You'll hear my prayers. God, I'm not just bringing my words before you. I'm bringing all of my heart. Consider my meditations. How do we live that out constantly in our lives? Well, we need to come to this great distinction between what is called Sunday living and a living sacrifice. Now, the Scriptures give clear indication that we are to gather just as we're gathered right now. Amen? I mean, we're told this. Attending church is not an option. Amen? Attending church is not an option. We are called to gather. And we are called to encourage. And we are called to worship our God as a corporate community of redeemed individuals. If you have sold out church attendance and you are a follower of Jesus, I'm going to lovingly say, please, please, Return to the fold. You belong to Jesus, so you don't have to prove that. But by returning, your heart becomes postured in obedience to the Master. But let me say, our Christian life in total is not defined by what we do for one hour on Sunday morning. That's called Sunday living. 
How do we know that our Christian faith far extends a one-hour attendance practice on Sundays? Well, just look at the message of the Scriptures. In Romans chapter 1, verse 17, well, I love this. In Romans 1, 17, we are told that we, the righteous, the ones redeemed, live by faith. That Scripture actually says, from faith to faith, from the very beginning to the end, constantly through our lives, we live by faith. Not just a placid trust when things become rocky. But true faith of bringing your life completely before Jesus constantly. Not just for an hour, but constantly bringing our lives before Him becomes the measure of who we are as believers in Christ. In fact, on and on again, Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, David said, I will meditate on God day and night. Does that sound like a once a week schedule? Absolutely not. David said, God, I'm yours regularly. It was in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, where the, the apostle said, He who says he abides in Jesus ought to live in Jesus. If I say I am belonging to Jesus, then I should live, translated, have my full being in Jesus. So while we are called to gather regularly with the saints, we are nowhere given the indication that that is all we need to do to prove that we belong to Jesus. So is my life best summarized by a, a Sunday living or a living sacrifice? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because this is your spiritual Worship. Would you take just a brief moment and realize what defines true worship? A living sacrifice. This counters the slain sacrifice recognized in the Jewish ceremonies. It was Bible scholar William R. Newell who actually said, and I fully agree that a living sacrifice stands intentionally contradistinctive to the slain sacrifices of the Old Testament because we are now fully made alive by Jesus and we can come before God having been made right and acceptable in God's life, in God's eyes as bringing our total self to Him in a form of worship. Our worship transcends the music. Our worship transcends the preaching. Our worship transcends the attendance. We are called to be a living sacrifice, meaning that I am yielding myself to Jesus completely and fully as an offering of praise. Because we are told, number one, living sacrifice, and then we're told this is our reasonable service of worship. The Greek term worship, latreo, actually indicates that which you and I would call liturgy. Referencing an actual practice regularly of one's faith. But we are told that our lutreo becomes evidenced as I become a living sacrifice daily. My life being an offering 
to God. Oh, what a beautiful picture this becomes. I, I love a statement made by renowned Baptist missionary Adoniram Judson. I love this. Judson made this statement. His wife told him that there was a newspaper article about his energy and accomplishments in missionary work. And that article had likened him to some of the apostles. Now, most of us would say, wow, that's quite a compliment. Not Adoniram Judson. He thought just the opposite. Judson replied, but I do not want to be like Paul or the apostles or any mere man. I want to be like Christ. I want to follow him only. I want to copy his teachings. I want to drink in his spirit and place my feet in his footprints. Oh, that I could be more like Christ. That's the product of a living sacrifice. Not that you're measuring up to man, but that you are following Jesus. Fully yielded to him, which takes us to a final question as our benediction. So I now guide you to the third question as we move just a bit deeper into the New Testament and we find our way to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We were there earlier. And we hear this question. What defines your influence on others? Talking the talk or walking the walk? It's pretty simple, huh? I'm aware that this question will likely be the one statement from your pastor you'll remember after five years of preaching, like, I can't believe he, he left with that question. But please understand, if we are to be a living sacrifice, taking our cue from Adoniram Judson and saying, I, I, I do not want to just be like other good people, my desire is Jesus. I'm a living sacrifice unto him. I would desire that my life and witness be judged by his goodness, not the applause of man. Then we must push ourselves to this final, very uncomfortable question. What truly defines my influence on others? Have I truly become that living sacrifice because as David, I'm before God's presence regularly. And how can I but say, Jesus, I'm yours. From that posture, am I influencing others based on talking a good talk or truly walking as one who's been changed by Jesus? This is the great evaluation, and yet it becomes so simple to our ears. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. It's very simple. Paul's writing. This is Paul in first person. Be imitators of me. Now, let's pause there. How many of us feel comfortable standing and saying, I would like for everybody, just do what I do? I know, scary, right? Frightening. Years ago, a young man by the name of George Zulu. You remember George Zulu. He's an African pastor who was attending Gardner Webb University and needed an internship. So I said, George, hey, the church I pastor, we're yours. Come do your internship. I was ready to uh, assign him some Sundays to preach and some Sunday school classes to lead and some administrative committees to attend. George came to me, big strapping young man, 
with such a guttural laugh. And I said, okay, George, your internship starts next week. What would you like to do? <laughs> oh, pastor, that's not the internship I seek. Oh, tell me exactly what you're looking for. I just want to follow you. I'm thinking, you mean like a pastoral succession? That's kind of a weird request, but so, no, I just want to, I want to go with you. Well, George, I'm not really going anywhere today. No, pastor. My internship is when you sit down, I sit down. When you study the Bible, I study the Bible. When you stand up and answer the call, I listen to you. When there's a call on the phone. When you go visit someone, I'm with you. When you go to the hospital, I'm there. When you're in a committee meeting, I'm there. When you talk to your family, I'm there. I, I just want to walk with you. And over, probably the most overwhelming experience I've ever had in full-time ministry. But he did. He stood right with me. Everywhere I went, even dear Margaret Green, who lived down from the church, invited me over for a piece of cake. George said, I'm coming too. <laughs> I was like, sure you are. You're going everywhere I'm going. I'd pull up for time in the office, and he's there in his car waiting on me. I would go to lunch. Where are we going for lunch today, and who are we going to witness to when we go to lunch? And I'm like, George, I just need a break. I just need, need five minutes, and... George said, oh, there's no time. I must learn. He stayed with me, my wife can tell you, for, for, for two years. Just stayed with me. I know, I felt the same way just about every morning. <laughs> really? Just there. And, you know, and people just started calling us brothers. You just let your mind know how funny that is. People are like, there come the brothers, Ken and George. And I'm like, okay, okay, thank you, Jesus. Uh, I cannot look at this verse without thinking about George. Why can't we say, I, I'm asking you now, why can't we say, hey, just do what I do? Because I'm following Jesus. If you need a road map, I understand you can't see Jesus with normal human optics. So you just follow me. Now, I'm going to mess up, but I know where I'm going. I know who I'm following. Just follow me. Just imitate me while I imitate Jesus. Why can't we say this? Why does this become overwhelming? So we do with this final question that you and I share as pastor and congregation. What defines your influence on others? Talking the talk? Oh, I would have taken 10 years of preaching instead of two years of just letting someone follow me, by the way. Do you know why? In the flesh. Do you know why? Because it's easier to talk the talk than it is to walk the walk. But why do we need someone asking us to follow us before we start realizing every second should be a living sacrifice moment and offering to God? Every second. There are no compartments. There are no drawers. So I'm asking, what defines your influence? Talking the talk. Walking the walk. See, I, I, love, I love chapter 11, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians because this actually becomes a summary of the last three verses of the previous chapter. Some of your more uh, later translations will actually have a gap in the printed text between verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 11. That's because chapter 11 is meant to belong previously. It had such a powerful statement that the translators desired that it would begin a chapter. But it belongs to the previous verses. So let me just read those previous verses to you as we close. 
By the way, this is an important footnote. When I uh, read my resignation to the church leadership, I kind of jokingly said, hey, 12 o'clock on the 1st, that will be when I will end. Uh, did not know we we're going to move the service up to 10, so I actually literally have till 12. Um, <laughs> just saying. Just saying. Verse 31, verse 31 through 33 of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Therefore, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or Greeks or to the church. Just as I also try to please all people in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. How can you say along with Paul, follow me as I follow Jesus? How can you be confident in this? I'll give you three statements from the closing of the previous chapter. First, rightly set yourself before God. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You, you need to rightly set yourself before God. Paul comes to the end of a debate over how uh, meat was being offered or not offered in the right way in sacrifices. Paul had been deliberating over public worship rituals and rites and Things that should be restricted, things that should not. And Paul gave this great summary, both uh, civilly as well as ceremonially. Just bring glory to God. Honor his name. Secondly, do not offend the church. That's what it says right here. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks, meaning do not cause them to stumble. That's what the word offense actually indicates. Do not, do not cause them to fall. The greatest way you and I can offend someone is to misdirect them with our actions. It's the greatest offense. Do not cause, not just the Jews and the Greeks who are leaning in to learn more about Jesus, do not cause the church to stumble. Do not criticize the church. Do not backbite in the church. Do not ruminate and rumor over things and other people in the church. Cherish the church. See her as the bride of Christ. Every, every wedding that I've performed, there have been hundreds, like most pastors would say, all the attention is on the bride. All the attention is on the bride. And well, it should be. In, in fact, a more recent wedding, the bride could ask you this. I would go to the bride and say, whatever you need me to do, tell me. Because I'm not asking anybody in this wedding but the bride. The bride's in charge. This is about her. I'll look at the groom and I'll say, do you agree? And he'll say, oh, you better believe I agree. <laughs> Make it about the bride. You are attending the wedding. You're not the bride. Mm. Make it about the church. Don't offend the church. So how can you say to someone else, hey, just follow me. Rightly posture yourself before God to give him glory. Never offend the church. And then third, make sure that whatever profit you seek, the profit would actually be that someone else would receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Verse 33, 
Paul said, I'm just desiring, the only prophet I'm seeking is that it might profit someone who doesn't know Jesus to be saved. You know, if you and I just did those three steps daily, we could probably say to someone else, hey, follow me. I mean, you, you might be bored. You'll see an imperfect person, but you can follow me because my priority is to glorify God. Hey, and when I, when I mess up on there, since you're following me, you hold me accountable. That's how much I care about glorifying God. When I don't do that, you, you hold me accountable. You ask me about it. And then my desire would be to never offend the church. So if you ever see me talking negative about the church or, or being dismayed about the church or just walking away because of frustration, you hold me accountable. That's not what a follower of Jesus does. And then if, and if I have any other pri priority other than someone in my circle knowing Jesus, you hold me accountable. Because my desire is to glorify God, love His church, and tell people about Jesus. That's the priority. And this is why Paul could say, go ahead and imitate me. You, you can because I'm following Christ. And if you continue to read chapter 11, you know Paul would, would say, because it's not about me. You follow me, you're just going to see and hear about Jesus. So I say to every one of you today, I, I affirm that, dear follower of Jesus, you've already been commissioned. I don't have to commission you. I don't have to ask you to do anything. You already know. You're already commissioned. I just give you this one final exhortation. Bring glory to God. Love the church. And tell other people about Jesus. And both what you say and how you live. And I promise you, I am continuing to do those very three steps as well. So that our, our influence becomes defined, not through our affluence, not through what other people say of us. Our influence comes because we're just simply walking the walk. How many of you are ready to walk the walk? You, you need to do that now more than ever because our world is hungrily looking for absolutes. And they exist in you. They're inside your life. They're inside your testimony. They're in you. Wow, so those are, the, uh, those are the three questions. I'm glad I stopped 45 minutes early. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 I do desire to end with this story. In 1927, there was a director by the name of Cecil B. DeMille who actually produced the first movie about Jesus. It was a silent film. Do you all know what I'm speaking of? I'm not going to ask you if you were there. Just wondering if you... The, the film debuted in 1927. So this is what DeMille decided he would do, this great Hollywood actor, renowned. He decided he would look at the actor who portrayed Jesus, H.B. Warner. This director looked at the actor. And DeMille said to Warner, I need to hold you accountable because of who you're portraying. So if, if my facts are right, he actually encouraged him to sign a commitment that for the following five years that actor would not take any role that would uh, dishonor the one he was portraying, Jesus. 
Made, it, made him commit, hey, you need, you need to live your life like you think Jesus would live his life because we want this movie to be real and, and authentic. Can I tell you that that commitment was a miserable flop? The actor gave in and eventually gave in to alcoholism. He would later resurface in a role on It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart, supporting role, but he, he, his lifestyle went the opposite direction from what he was demanded to do. He was demanded to be like Jesus, and it didn't work. It didn't work. He was demanded, you should act more like Christ. It will help others. It did not work. The demand did not work. Neither will it work today. So instead of saying, be more like Jesus, I'm just going to go back to Psalm 5 and say, spend more time with Jesus. Come before him regularly with a repentant heart. Be honest before Jesus. Live authentically before Jesus. And you will not help but live for him if you are consistently living before him. Love you a lot. Let's pray.